Welcome to Talking Points. My name is Justin Moore. I'm the founder and CEO of Trending Family, which is an influencer marketing agency that launches campaigns with family-friendly influencers. I'm so honored to be guest hosting this week along with my colleague, Sean Fraser. Hey, everyone. I'm Sean. I'm the VP of Creative Services and Client Success at Trending Family. So excited to chat through some of these articles this week. There was a lot of good stuff here. And why don't we kick it off by chatting about the Influence 100. So this list was curated by Influence Weekly, and there's a lot of great stuff on here. And Sean, I thought we could just chat initially about, you know, what a great mix of kind of both top influencers as well as industry folks here. Definitely. Yeah, both are equally valuable in the community. And I thought it was so interesting that some of the leaders of the platforms were seen as the most influential people within the industry. Mm-hmm. I think that really speaks to how, you know, creators are so subject to the whims of the platforms. And it's important for them to diversify in case things start changing for what kind of content is acceptable. Right, exactly. And I think also how global in scale it was, right? I mean, there was folks on here that, you know, maybe US based marketers might not really recognize. And I think it's, it's important, especially a lot of the major social platforms are based in the US. And so I think there is this mindset, especially because a lot of the brands that do influencer marketing are, are based here in the US. And so there exists this massive ecosystem outside of the US on different platforms. And, and there's just giant creators and businesses that are being built outside of the US. And so I thought the list was great in that regard in terms of acknowledging that. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely speaks to the idea that global companies should be working with influencers across many different nations. Right. And I also thought it was interesting that it really illustrated how there was a lot of competition to serve the creator economy. We were seeing all kinds of people heading up software solutions that could, you know, help creators develop their best work. Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, in the early days of influencer marketing, most of the businesses that were being built were to help kind of cater to the brands and the advertisers that were wanting to do influencer marketing. But there really has been this, you know, proliferation of lots and lots of companies to, like you mentioned, serve the creator economy, whether it's Patreon is, you know, a a giant example, but other more niche players too. You know, it's helping creators manage their business or do invoicing or CRM to help manage brand deals or things like that, which there was some folks on this list in that part of the ecosystem, too, which I thought was quite interesting. Also, you know, there are investors on this list, too, where, you know, you're seeing kind of incumbent brands waking up to the reality that influencer partnerships, whether it's, you know, investing in their own businesses or doing kind of co-branded product lines. We've seen this very successfully in the cosmetics industry, you know, partnering with beauty creators on YouTube or Instagram. It can be extremely lucrative, right? I mean, Shane Dawson and and Jeffree Star, I mean, they did it all themselves. I mean, Jeffree Star launched his own line, obviously, but I think the incumbents are kind of waking up like, wow, we can actually see some great returns here. So that was quite interesting. Yes, those partnerships can definitely be lucrative. And I foresee us starting to see those transition into other industries beyond cosmetics as well. Within the family-friendly space, I could see it appearing with toys or games or different baby products. And also within the family space, I think it's so exciting that you, Justin, got listed to the watch <laughs> list of the top 100 influential people. I think it speaks to you know what a huge portion of the sphere that family-friendly content is becoming. Yeah, no, I I thank you. And I was surprised not expecting that. And so that was one of the things they mentioned in the list was, obviously, we have an agency, but 
we have our own podcast called Sponsored Post Podcast. And I actually interviewed Andrew, the curator of the Influence Weekly newsletter. So that's how we got friendly. But yeah, I mean, I think we have started interviewing a lot of really influential brand marketers and, and creators and so excited to be on that watch list. And yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. So the next article we'll chat about is the state of influencer marketing from later.com. They outlined some key points here and key learnings from 2019. And I think that a great place to start here is just that from a brand perspective, it seems there's a really established content rule of thumb. However, in terms of how consumers are looking at social, we're really seeing a shift away from these high gloss produced assets. We're seeing a huge rise in Instagram stories being a larger portion of the content. And then these longer descriptions and more authentic stories appearing in feed. Mm -hmm. I think there is, especially among Gen Z, a little bit of a rejection of this very heavily produced type of content. I think it's really, I, I really feel for brands, to be honest, because it's like brands have finally gotten used to like the way things are supposed to be in terms of, you know, creating content and how you're supposed to talk to consumers and especially in the Instagram environment. And yet now you're seeing, you know, with the rise of like Fisco and like other platforms where it's like this rejection of glossy. People want this more like raw. I think that may be due to the rise of ephemeral and people just being much more used to real and authentic moments more so than this heavily curated environment in Instagram. So it's definitely very challenging. I think one of the things that's quite challenging about ephemeral is that for brands, it just requires a lot more resources to create content for stories, right? And I think the best brands are acknowledging that, yeah, they may have a, a polished brand aesthetic, but your stories may not necessarily need to be that way. you know. And that's where you're going to see the best engagement and you're going to see the best reaction from your followers and your consumers if you don't make it super polished and curated, you know? Definitely agree. And I think too, that speaks to how influencers can be useful for brands because they can become content partners. So, you know, when brands are trying to create this higher volume of content, influencers can be a great resource for that. And that type of content does seem to be much more authentic. And I think that this shift may stem too from overall ad load increasing significantly and people really noticing that. It seems like there's this general cultural perception that feeds are getting more cluttered with ads. And personally, I think that influencers could be a great resource for reintroducing those authentic stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is pop culturally a little bit of a bubble that I think a lot of brand marketers sometimes operate in. You know, you read the trades and you, you know, read LinkedIn and you talk with your colleagues and, you know, you work with influencers and stuff. And so the creator economy and influencer marketing is very normal to folks who are working in this industry. But outside of that, I think there still is kind of this general perception that, you know, sometimes influencers or creators are kind of ridiculed in pop culture, whether it's in, you know, traditional publications or things like that. And so the way in which influencer marketing touches the general populace is in the way of ads, right? And so I think there is this sense, not only from marketers, but from just general consumers that there's just so many ads, whether it's like sponsored posts by influencers in feed that are organic or actually like ads in feed. And so I'm not really sure what that's going to lead to, but I think that's definitely going to be something to watch in terms of 2020, whether social networks limit the amount of ads you're seeing in feed or I don't know, it's also December. So <laughs> maybe anecdotally things are just really heavy right now. But I do think we've seen that like build up over 2019. 
I agree. And I think it's coming to a head with changes being made like Instagram and potentially other social platforms removing likes. You know, maybe that could be in response to this overwhelming amount of ads we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And that maybe they're trying to nip a lot of the criticisms around mental health and the attention economy and things like that. Two birds with one storm, you know, removing likes where, you know, maybe influencers won't be able to do as many sponsored posts without likes, although they'll still be able to see them, you know, in their back end, of course, but super interesting. Another really interesting article about grocery influencers. Obviously, we've seen a massive rise in with me content, whether it's shop with me, clean with me, even study with me, you know, and so this phenomenon of, of people wanting to watch other people do relatively mundane tasks is really a giant trend this year. I mean, across the board, whether it's on YouTube and, and other platforms. But this article in particular was quite interesting about there are these influencers that have these very well engaged and well-liked pages on Facebook, for example, for Aldi, a grocery store. And there's these kind of niche groups that are brand specific. So it's not even like an influencer who has an affinity to a certain brand and it's their name. It's actually the name of the group is like Aldi lovers or whatever it is, right? And so I think it's it's quite interesting that you know, you've got these influencers, but also just everyday consumers who love you know, certain brands and want to be engaging with content about that brand on a daily basis. Definitely. Yep. And I think it's really interesting too, because it feels a little reminiscent of past blogging trends when we used to see blogs all about couponing or about, you know, getting the most for your money at a certain store. I think it's really exciting to see that being revitalized in video, especially since those were content pieces that were really interesting and entertaining for a lot of people. Right. I, I think it also harkens back to just generally like, you know, word of mouth and, and kind of micro influencer strategies are working, right? And engaging with these kind of niche creators who already have brand affinity can be an indicator of, you know, perhaps who you should be forging larger partnerships with to do custom content, right? It's one thing to, you know, talk about in this article how Kroger, for example, gave some of these influencers like first look at their weekly discounts or specials or special incentives that they offer to the group. But, you know, what other meaningful ways can you partner with these influencers to create great content? I, I think that that's a, you know, for brands who haven't necessarily done a ton of influencer marketing before, it could be a good first step to kind of identify these micro folks who are huge fans and kind of run some initial kind of mini campaigns with them. So there were two articles in this newsletter focused on the influencer economy in India. And those were about the digital disruptors making waves there and also Brand Factory's campaign on TikTok that did extremely well. And I think this is a really exciting trend in 2020, just thinking about how global brands or brands that are thinking about expanding around the world really should not limit their influencer content to being in English. After all, India has the second largest internet user base and some of the largest global creators. Absolutely. And and I mean, if you just think about how influential English entertainment has been over the last couple decades in movie and TV and, you know, being heavily followed by global audiences, I think that now that you're starting to see a lot of brands pump out a lot of content, needing to think about how can you capitalize on some of this extended viewership with potentially non-English content, right? So you've got a global consumer 
maybe a fan of your brand, you, your brand may not even be in that economy yet. And yet brands are kind of, you know, they're losing mileage. There may be extended mileage that they can get out of this content by thinking a little bit more globally about how they can repurpose it. Definitely. And then stepping over to the Brand Factory article, I think this is really interesting too, just showing the success of TikTok. I know that many brands have been very hesitant to start working with influencers on the platform, especially due to the limited metrics that you can receive from TikTok content. But I think that seeing numbers like this really showcases the payoff for brands who choose to jump in and go where consumers are consuming content. Right. And I think the other interesting thing is, you know, there's a trade-off, right? Like you don't have a ton of metrics. This was a criticism for a long time about Snapchat, you know, in terms of the limited metrics that, you know, you had to take screenshots of like views per snap and stuff like that. But for brands who are willing to kind of invest in perhaps allocate some of their marketing budget towards something a little bit more speculative like this, I think that the rewards can be a plenty. And the other thing, too, is that because there are not as many brands sponsoring creators on the platform, the rates at which you're able to get sponsorships from creators tends to be lower than like YouTube and Instagram and things like that, too. And so definitely something to consider for a lot of brands. So there was another good article about a influencer campaign that Vistaprint did with Rosanna Pancino, who's one of the leading cooking and lifestyle creators on YouTube and Instagram. And she highlighted all of the offerings that Vistaprint has for the holidays. And so she did a photo shoot with her family and made some holiday cards and calendars and things like that. One thing that was interesting, obviously, most brands provide a vanity URL when they're working with creators, you know, vistaprint.com slash Rosanna or whatever the influencer is. And I thought there was a slightly missed opportunity here to not integrate Rosanna into the vanity URL landing page more deeply. You know, so if you click that link, you know, you go through and you can see some of the cards they have, but there's nothing, there's no photo of her. There's, you know, her video is not embedded on the Vistaprint site, you know, nothing additionally on there. You know, we have found a lot of success when our clients are able to embed the video and maybe have a little bio of the influencer, maybe even have a curated collection of products from that brand on the site. So allowing the consumer, you know, holding their hand a little bit more on the consumer, you know, purchasing journey where they're clicking off of YouTube. Now they're landing on the brand site. You know, how can you further push that consumer down the purchase funnel? I think things like that are are pretty critical. And so Maybe a little bit of a missed opportunity here, but, you know, great campaign otherwise. Yeah, I definitely agree, Justin. And I think that in addition to creating a better experience through the entire point of sale, there's opportunities to use, you know, POS integration of influencer content to drive engagement as well. There could have been custom content that was only appearing on Vistaprint's pages that, you know, Rosanna was sending her followers over to. And I think that's a great way to generate click-through in addition to, you know, walking them all the way to purchase. So one more article to chat about is the one focused on athlete influencers. And I think that the huge takeaway here is that athletes of the modern age are really required to have a robust digital presence in order to endorse a brand these days. It can't be just their likeness or just their image on a glossy ad. Now they're really having to further that with, you know, shout outs on different social and direct engagement with their own followers. It's pretty interesting because athletes, I think, have been some of the oldest, quote unquote, influencers before that was a word, right? I mean, 
you've got the celebrities, but you've also got the athletes and, and they've been doing brand endorsements for so long. And so I've definitely heard that too, especially talking with traditional like agents at some of the traditional agencies, whereas, you know, before, like you said, they were able to do these very traditional campaigns and they mainly just wanted to use their name and likeness for out of home or, or other TV traditional kind of broadcast ads. But now like, you know, as part of these endorsement deals, they need to have so many Instagram posts per month and so many IG stories and YouTube, if they have a YouTube presence. And so you're seeing, a lot of these traditional athletes hiring, like actually hiring social teams to help, you know, diversify and, and grow their business. And so I think it's, it's just a really interesting evolution. And I think everyone is recognizing that, you know, needing to have a digital presence is no longer an option, you know, if they want to compete with other peers in their industry. So thanks again to Influence Weekly for letting us guest host Talking Points this week. Again, I'm Justin Moore with my colleague, Sean Fraser. Uh, you can find out more information about Trending Family at trendingfamily.com.